0: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Hetty Barkworth-Nanton, who is the chair of the board at Refuge. Refuge is an organization that's helping those who are experiencing domestic violence. So we're going to be having a wide-ranging conversation with Hetty around the topic of domestic violence. We're going to be looking at some very sobering statistics. We're going to be looking at how attitudes and behaviors are changing, how the pandemic has exacerbated the problem, and even how technology itself is innovating in such a way that it's presenting new threats to those experiencing domestic violence. Think about things such as the miniaturization of surveillance equipment that's now ubiquitous and low cost. So, Hetty, without further ado, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today.
1: Thank you, Alberto. It's a privilege to be here.
0: Well, it's great to see you again, and I'm looking forward to learning all about your work. Why don't we start by finding out a little bit about Refuge. What's Refuge all about?
1: Okay, so um, Refuge, we're in the UK. We um, are an organisation, a charity that provides uh, frontline services and support to uh, victims of domestic abuse, women and children, in fact. Um, And those services are, in summary, uh, we provide refuge services if they need to flee their home, then we will provide safe accommodation. We also provide outreach services, which um, enables us to support women who stay in their own home. Uh, We also run the National Domestic Abuse Helpline here in England. And we also, within all of that, um, also have a tech abuse team, which I think would be quite interesting to talk about, who support uh, women who are experiencing tech abuse. So um, stalking, uh, online abuse, anything that is using technology, um, we would support them in helping them to make themselves safe. So that is what refugees We were established in 1971 with the first ever um, safe house accommodation provided in fact in the world not just in the uk uh in in the services in chiswick which we still run today um and we've grown we've grown since then and we're now an organization which supports uh about seven thousand women and children at any one point in time
0: that's amazing and do you work exclusively in the united kingdom in england
1: uh yeah we work exclusively in england Uh, but we work in partnership with other organisations across the UK. And indeed, um, because we run the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, although there is also one in Wales and there's also one in Scotland and there's also one in Northern Ireland, we do quite often get phone calls through to our National Domestic Abuse Helpline, which we um, we then pass on to our colleagues across the other parts of the UK.
0: Right. Very collaborative.
1: Yeah, very collaborative. And I think that's an interesting sort of segue because you know, we we are going through our own transformation and change at Refuge, um, have been since for the last two years since I joined as chair. And one of the big changes is around collaboration and partnership with the rest of the sector. Um, I believe passionately and we at the board indeed um, the leadership team at Refuge really believe that no one's got all the right answers. Um, And in fact, if you want the best answers, you need to innovate. And in order to innovate, you need diversity of thought, you need creativity and you need different ideas. So actually partnership is right front and centre of the uh, new strategy that we've got at Refuge and it's so important.
0: And tell me a little bit about the state of affairs with regards to domestic violence. And, uh, and well, hopefully it's the tail end of the pandemic, but there's been so much during lockdown that you would read in the headlines and people being locked down with their abusers. And uh, so what's the state of affairs in general and and how have things been exacerbated as a consequence of these last two, two and a half years?
1: Yeah, so I'll focus on the UK first, but um, I can give you a few international statistics as well, if that's helpful. So, Um, In the UK, um, we estimate that one in four women in England and Wales will experience domestic abuse at some point in their lifetime and still horrifically and still stubbornly staying at the same level around two women a week in England and Wales are killed by a current or former partner. These are stats that people are always shocked about when they hear, um, but nonetheless, they are not only true, but they are stats that, as I said earlier, are stubborn in their relentlessness in staying at that kind of level. To make some of that real, so um, police recorded a total of 1.5 million domestic abuse-related incidents and crimes um, in the year ending March 2021. Um, And of those 845,000 were recorded as domestic abuse-related crimes, which is an increase in 6% from the previous year and um makes up nearly 20% of all offences recorded by the police in that year so um you know it is it is dominant in lockdown it was tough it was really really tough for women who were effectively locked inside a property with the abuser not just tough for those women but tough for the children who often actually use the fact that they can get away from the home as a way to get respite from actually what can be quite an intensive and toxic environment within the home that can have lifetime impacts on the children. So um, in lockdown, I think we saw something like 85% increase in the number of calls coming through to the National Domestic Abuse Helpline. And in fact, we haven't seen a substantial reduction in those calls since lockdown started to dissipate. In part, I think, because actually one of the things that came out of lockdown is an increased awareness amongst the general public around domestic abuse, what it means, what's not okay, and therefore when to get help. But we're nowhere near where we we need to be. Nowhere near.
0: And also with lockdown... Uh, with children not going to school during that period schools act as a screening mechanism right they can detect what's happening at home and if there's any abuse and um
1: yeah none of none of that was available and as i said at a time when actually children were in a a much more critical much more toxic environment because they couldn't get out um and that's an environment where often um the abuse and the control we talk a lot about coercive control would be escalating because um For the perpetrator, it's all about control over the individual and where lockdown's perfect because you have ultimate control. They can't go anywhere. So all bets are off. You can pretty much do anything. That was the kind of things that we were starting to see coming through. And it was really horrific for a lot of women and children. Mm.
0: And you mentioned technology. You touched on that briefly. Again, everything was being done online. A uh, perfect setting, right, uh, for for very nasty things to to materialize.
1: Yeah, and and we see some really awful stuff coming through in terms of tech abuse. Um, of all of the women and children that have come to refuge over the last year, nearly sixty percent were experiencing abuse involving technology. So it's pretty prevalent in a way in which it wouldn't have been ten years ago. Um, and look, you know, to give you some examples, we see examples of recording and listening devices being concealed in furniture, in household items, some of those devices so small that it's almost they're almost undetectable. We see tracking devices attached to cars, installed on mobile phones. We hear from survivors who had their Wi-Fi com- compromised to remotely lock doors. So even if the perpetrator isn't in the house. They're able to lock doors remotely, um, imprisoning them in their own homes. They're able to turn the heating up and down. So all the stuff that we talk about in really positive ways in terms of the impact of technology and what it's doing and smart homes and all the rest of it are amazing, but they have a dark side to them too.
0: And just like we're in the early days, as it were, of of the benefits of these technologies, the internet of things and all these things, I guess by by extension, we're also in the early days of how these things can be used in a in a in a negative manner right because the the surveillance gadgetry is only going to get smaller, more sophisticated, more powerful
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean imagine being effectively locked in a home um and you're by yourself and the and it's suddenly it's in the middle of winter. And the temperature goes down to the, t- the heating just turns off, and you can't get the heating back on, because actually the heating's being controlled by someone else remotely. So you're freezing cold. It's all about messing with the head. That's what all this stuff is about. Um, and sadly, you know the, we find that in the domestic homicides that I mentioned, you know, in, in England and Wales alone two a week, um, control, coercive control. Um, is prevalent in about 92 percent of those relationships. Everybody thinks it's the violent ones that result in death. Actually, it's quite the opposite. It's the ones where there's a heavy amount of coercive control interspersed with kind of small instances of death or, or, or of violence or even threats of violence. It doesn't even need to be violence. Um, it's the coercive control and how that manifests itself in many ways, including technology, that is the really, really dark side of domestic abuse that everybody should be concerned about. And it affects everybody. You know, one in four women, I can guarantee you, you know, you know, people who are probably victims of domestic abuse today or certainly have been. Um, Everybody knows them. We don't always know that it's happening.
0: And the attitudes you mentioned that perhaps counterintuitive, but as the pandemic wanes, still the number of people coming forward and seeking help has not gone down what's happening these days? are people more aware of the problem are are people more confident that if they come forward they'll be helped they'll be taken seriously?
1: Alberto, there are so many gaps um, I sort of don't know where to start. I think there's definitely an increase in awareness, which is fantastic um, I think there is actually and this is my personal opinion, there is an increase in the severity of domestic abuse, particularly fueled by the use of technology. Um, Because, you know, 15 years ago, whilst the perpetrator may have had ideas of, you know, stalking and this and that and the other, it's so much more accessible to them now. So I think it's happening more and more. So I think there's that going on. Um, your question around, you know, do people think that they'll the help is there and therefore therefore they'll they will reach out to it? I think there is a lot more work that has been done and and refuge has been you know pivotal in that in terms of raising awareness and making sure people know where to come. Um, you know, we ran a campaign during lockdown called "Make the Helpline Famous," um, which is an example of some of the things that we've done. But nonetheless. Um, there are huge gaps in whilst people are confident, I think, that if they pick the phone up, someone will answer and they'll get help. The confidence with the criminal justice system in this country is very, very low. And that plays out through the stats. So um, there is no, there is an awful lot more to be done before people really kind of feel that reaching out does not just mean that they get someone to talk to with sympathetic ear but that they actually get the help that they need and that the criminal justice system does step up and support them there's real fear out there and that needs a lot of work in order to dissipate
0: sobering picture now you were more than one hat and you're also the chief executive officer of plowshare or plowshare innovations and i remember when you and i were speaking uh, a little while back you mentioned that there is uh, there is an intersection there between the work you're doing at Refuge, uh, addressing domestic violence, and also defense technology. And I'd love to delve into that, uh, especially since we've been touching a little bit about technology more broadly and how it can be used in a negative way. What's, what's your take on things?
1: Yeah, so um, funnily enough, I got the job at Refuge, um, very, very. I was offered it literally a week after. No, a week before. I think I was offered the job at Ploughshare. So, just um, for those listening, in very, in very high level terms, what does Ploughshare do? We take the intellectual property that's come out of the science and technology investment at the Ministry of Defence, um, and we get it into hands of users. So, we effectively commercialise it. We license it into either existing companies who will take it to market, or we will set up our own companies, we call them spin-outs, and those companies we get investment for and they flourish and they take technology out to market. So that's, in summary, what we do. Some but not all of our um, innovation is effectively taking science that's been developed for defence and putting it into defence users, so putting it into military users, but oftentimes we're actually – ensuring that that technology gets into the hands of civilian users for wider societal benefit. And that's why I took the job, because actually I believe passionately about doing everything I can to make a difference to society in the widest possible way. Um, So I thought it was a really positive move, but some didn't. And there's definitely a, you know, in, in the domestic abuse sector, you know, there is quite rightly a real need to be very anti-violence and the perception is that everything in defense is all about ultimately violence and war. And actually what I've learned in my time at Ploughshare is that actually everything that we're dealing with is what I would call defensive rather than offensive. Um, And everything is all about protecting lives and saving lives. Um, and therefore does not have that sort of violence, violent peace that people were concerned about. But they were concerned to the point whereby um, when I, when my role was announced at Refuge, um, there was an article in the Saturday Telegraph saying um, uh, war, uh, weapons, trading, anti-feminist takes over at Refuge. It was kind of, you know, it definitely created that reaction which I needed to understand, and actually, now that I'm working in both organisations have been for two years, what I've learned is that some of that is misplaced. Because in fact, everything that we work on has been developed to save lives, to protect lives, and ultimately to ensure, and what we're doing is we're taking technology that's been built to save and protect lives in a defence environment, and we're putting it into civilian So. Actually, it's entirely consistent, in my view, with all of the work that we do at Ploughshare. And to give you an example, so one of the technologies that was developed um, to tr- in, w- within defence in order to try to identify um, whether you could identify the people who had developed weapons in a war setting in order to be able to trace it back to where the source was, that technology has resulted in a groundbreaking fingerprint technology that can identify fingerprints on surfaces that previously have never been possible to be identify. So metal and knives are notoriously difficult to identify fingerprints. Anything that's been underwater, anything that's been in extreme heat, notoriously difficult for identifying fingerprints that can now be done it's now solving cold cases around the world and many of those cases are domestic homicides by definition so there's one example where work that we're doing here at ploughshare is actually benefiting those left behind from victims of domestic abuse um, across the world not just in the uk and there are others like that, too. So actually, there's there's some really interesting intersections. But you just need to think about it, the fact that a lot of defense investment in science and technology is about protecting lives and saving lives. And you think about it like that, you can start to draw the parallels many, many, many times over.
0: And with the technology, then just touching on what we mentioned a little bit earlier, um, it shouldn't... Uh, necessarily deflate one to think that technology is getting better and therefore has the potential to be used negatively. But likewise, the defense mechanisms are also getting a little bit savvier, a little bit more sophisticated. And uh, so it's not a lost battle by any means.
1: It's not a lost battle by any means. And you're absolutely right. So much investment in defense is going into looking at artificial intelligence and digital areas and, and cyber. It's all about protecting us You know, in in society and all of those methodologies can and will be attributable to protecting victims of domestic abuse, ultimately, once we start to work them through and start to apply them in the right way. So, you know, I, I I think the intersection is really real and one that we need to encourage.
0: It's worth pointing out also the context with regards to defense companies and um, a lot of people who are very keen, who are listening to this show, who are very keen on ESG investing, ESG integrated investing. You know, where do defense companies lie? And I think the uh, the war in Ukraine has has certainly brought this conversation uh, to the fore. And many people thinking, well, if there were no defense companies, what would be the consequence to that war? Certainly, a lot of debate going on within the ESG investing world right now about defense and defense companies. Um, tell me a little bit about your background. So you're you're the chair at Refuge. You're the chief executive at uh, at Plowshare. Uh, give us a little bit of of, of insight into your into your um, your personal narrative, your career trajectory. <laughs>
1: So I spent the first 25 years of my career leading large-scale transformational change in large organisations. So I did British Airways, all British, I'm afraid. Um, I did British Airways, um, Centrica, which is basically British Gas, um, BT, British Telecom, um, and then latterly Vodafone, um, looking at transforming their fixed-line business in the UK. So that's been my background. Um, how then on earth did I end up where I've ended up?
0: So because that's a that's it, it does not get more corporate than that.
1: No, it really doesn't get more corporate than that. And you know, people would say you've got blue chip all the way through your CV. Why on earth are you di- kind of diverting? Well, um, I think two reasons. The first is that I always had in me this desire, this this desire to be doing things that made a difference to people. Um, it was always part of my DNA, but I wasn't expressing it because I was, you know, I ended up in the corporate world doing jobs and jobs pay well. And then it's very easy to find yourself in a situation where you're sort of almost stuck in a lifestyle trap in a corporate organisation, even if it doesn't really feel right. Um, so I did that for 25 years. Um, back in 2010. And, and and then, you know, yeah. So back in 2010, my life, from a personal point of view, took a different trajectory. So in 2010, um, my best friend was brutally killed by her estranged husband. Um, and not only was that a pr- very brutal killing um, with lots of pre-planning because he would dug a six-foot grave months beforehand, but we went through a terrible time with the criminal justice system and he was not convicted of murder, which is why I haven't said that she was murdered. He was convicted of manslaughter. So, And the problem with the criminal justice system when you're going through traumatic events is that you get re-traumatised all the time. Because it's not just the event, it's what happens afterwards. So all of that happened to, um, to my friend Joe in 2010, going into 2011. And I'll be honest, it ripped me apart in terms of my ability to be able to even function so i then spent three best part of three and a half years um unable to work just absolutely flawed and i suffered from ptsd for a further four years i also then as i started to get back to work i then was diagnosed with breast cancer So I had a year going through cancer treatment. And I'm now really thankful that I'm absolutely thriving. I'm not just surviving, I'm absolutely thriving. Um, And I'm thriving because not only um, was I extremely fortunate to be seen by one of the top trauma psychiatrists in the country who cured my PTSD, which I never ever thought would happen. But also I have through that time to reflect, understood myself better, understood what drives me better and therefore made a conscious decision to be where I am now in terms of my career, both with Ploughshare and with Refuge. So I'm applying all of the expertise and the capability that I developed over the course of those 25 years, um, which was irreplaceable. I'm applying it in an environment where it truly truly means something to me and I can make a huge difference not just kind of to in terms of the people that we support every day at Refuge from a domestic abuse point of view not just in terms of the great tech that we're taking through Plowshare but also with the individuals that work with us and the difference it makes their lives working in organizations that are flourishing where they feel valued, where they feel empowered Um, so So that's a bit of a whistle-stop tour in terms of where I've been and how I've got to where I've got to. And there's a lot more to come. I don't quite know what that looks like, um, but I do know there's an awful lot more to come and there's an awful lot more that I can make a difference on and that I will continue to strive to do so.
0: Um, What's the website address?
1: uh www.refuge.org.uk Great. and for anybody who is um who's worried about anybody um then you really would encourage them to phone the helpline so the number of the helpline is 808
0: excellent that key takeaway what's the one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to uh to today's interview if there is one thing it could be two Oh, that's
1: perfect, Alberto. You've just given me a get out (laughs) clause. So the first one um, is absolutely remember those stats. One in four women experiencing domestic abuse at any one point in time in their lives, you will know them. You might just not know it's happening. And that two women a week are killed in England and Wales alone at the hands of a partner or ex-partner. And all of that is simply a horrific pandemic that we absolutely have to do something about and men have a huge role to play. So that would be my first point. Second point is more one, really a bit about everybody and the relationships that you have. What I've learned through my life experience is that we all carry our crosses. Everyone's got a cross. Some people are fortunate enough to have nice light crosses, and some people have really big heavy crosses, but we all have our crosses. And I would just implore everybody to make sure that the way in which you're engaging with people around you, the relationships that you have, you're creating the environment where people feel able to talk about their crosses and that you're able to walk alongside them and help them to carry their cross. And that way, we will all be making so much more difference every single day to the people around us and to their lives. And ultimately for me, that's what philanthropy, what everything that we're talking about is all about.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm very glad that you picked uh, not just one takeaway, but two, two very good ones. Thank you. Hetty. thank you so very much for joining me and joining us on the do one better podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure it's a sobering topic, but I'm glad we, we, we were able to talk about it and, uh, and hopefully inform people and hopefully, if somebody's listening who's in need of help, uh, prompting them to pick up the phone or get in touch somehow.
1: Yeah, thank you very much indeed, Alberto.
0: Perfect, and that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Hetty Barkworth-Nanton, Chair of the Board at Refuge. For information about this episode and nearly 200 other interviews and case studies with remarkable leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at legi.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. I very much enjoyed producing this episode for you, despite the sobering nature of the conversation, and I hope you found it informative as well. Thank you for downloading and I'll catch you next week.